This podcast is brought to you by the Health Sciences Doctoral Training Centre at King's College London. Hi, you're listening to Postdocalypse, a podcast by postgrad students about all things postgrad. We are a team of PhD students here at King's College London trying to navigate this crazy world, and we'll be sharing the highs and the lows of postgraduate study with you. In this episode, we have Harris Schwabe interviewing Katie about her PhD research in molecular oncology. And that's just fancy talk for cancer. That will be followed by a brief panel discussion covering the hot-button issue of working during your PhD. So look out, Brits. We're going to make you uncomfortable. We're talking about money. Take it away, Harris. Thanks, Julie. Welcome, guys, to another episode. Uh, Hi, Katie. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. So how did you end up doing a PhD in cancer? What was the motivation? Well, interesting question. I actually wanted to work in neuroscience to begin with. Mm. Um, But this lab was one of my rotations in my uh, rotation year of my PhD. And pretty much the second I walked in, I just all of a sudden felt like I needed to be working in cancer research. That's that's so good. So I was, um, my first choice was an autism project actually, and I was doing genetic stuff. And it was really interesting, but I was just really struck by how completely unfair cancer was as soon as I Mm. started working on it and I just couldn't get it out of my head I really couldn't shake it so where are you sort of in the whole sort of health sciences space right because I'm sort of very familiar with sort of the imaging sciences but don't know anything about anyone else (laughs) yeah okay so I did my undergrad in biological sciences so that was pretty much a bit of everything it was biochem it was um, human anatomy it was microbiology Mm -hmm. and then I specified more to have um, biomedical sciences so something that was really translational but still kind of at the molecular level Um, and I specialized a little bit further to focus more on genetics okay Um, so that's pretty much how I ended up here I definitely don't know anything about imaging sciences and know lots more about proteins than I do about imaging So you're working on head and neck squamous cell carcinoma. Yes. So just briefly, what does that mean to the layperson? So head and neck squamous cell carcinomas, or HNSCCs, are a very specific type of head and neck cancer. So this is oral cancer, uh, throat cancer, okay. or the upper bit of the throat. Right. Um, and, you know, tongue cancer and stuff like that. And these are just cancers that come from squamous cells, which are kind of a type of epithelium. For people who, I guess, have not, might not have heard of it before, how prevalent is it, say, in the UK? So it's actually really, um, really common. I think okay. it's the, the fifth most common kind of cancer. Wow, okay. Um, it's 600,000 cases annually. Wow. I actually can't remember if that's globally or in the UK, Okay. <laughs> which is really bad, <laughs> I should know that. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot either way. Yeah. And so... And so what's the sort of, do you know what the typical pathway is for these patients? Is what sort of, what's the usual treatment? Yeah, so most people get diagnosed quite late, which is quite bad, obviously. So it's a higher grade when they yeah, present? Yeah, so most people present at stage four, which for non-cancer um, yeah. people is one of the last stages. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are very limited kinds of treatment. So radiotherapy is the primary um, method of treatment. Right, so that's where we irradiate yes. the tumour directly, right? Okay. Yeah, so surgery is used. Surgery for most cancers is the first thing they do. They want to yeah. chop out the tumour. But for people with head and neck cancer, they might have a tumour in their tongue. So mm. if you chop out the tongue, they can't speak. Of course, um, yeah. Same with vocal cords, other things like that. So it has a significant impact on their quality of life, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's one of the biggest issues with head and neck cancer. 
there are chemotherapeutics. So there's a drug called zisplatin, which is sometimes used, but okay. it's not very effective. Right. And there's one targeted therapy, so that's an antibody drug yeah. that is targeting a molecule called EGFR. But again, yeah. despite patients having EGFR as a, as a diagnostic marker for their tumours, they don't always respond to this targeted drug. So what is your lab then trying to do to, to help these patients? So my lab is trying to look at the mechanisms behind uh, resistance to radiotherapy, which happens in about 50% of patients. So for half of them, the radiotherapy doesn't work? Yeah, so okay. literally for half, half of the people, they already are told they might not survive five years. And okay. then they fail radiotherapy and they literally have no other options. What about solving the radiosensitivity problem are you working on? Okay, so we've kind of started by looking at the genetics behind, uh, or the genetics that might be controlling the mechanisms that affect radiotherapy resistance. Okay, so, you're there, so there's something in these people's DNA, so yeah. or the very nature of the tumour mm-hmm. that makes it resistant. So it's not like an accident of treatment or some other incident or environmental thing. It's something particular to the thing itself. Yeah, so there are a number of things that might be going on inside their tumour, but First of all, a couple of years ago, my lab took patients and sequenced their uh, tumours and they identified kind of a panel of genes that were affected um, in the patients who didn't respond to radiotherapy. Um, So my lab is working on looking at a couple of these and how they might affect um, the mechanisms that kind of control radiotherapy resistance in tumours. So so day to day, what are you doing with these genes and these proteins? Okay, so specifically, I'm looking at another characteristic of head and neck cancers which affects radiotherapy. Yeah. And that's called hypoxia, otherwise known as low oxygen conditions. Okay. We found a protein that when we get rid of it, it makes the cells radio resistant in low oxygen conditions and not in normal oxygen conditions. What, why is this oxygen condition important? So this is important because a lot of head and neck cancers do have this low oxygen condition environment. Right. And that not only makes the cells more resistant to therapy, but it also makes them really aggressive. Ah, uh, okay. So it also makes them more likely to metastasize, which is what we call the formation of secondary tumours. So, so remind me again, what, what is it you're doing with these proteins? Okay, so in this, in this hypoxic <laughs> environment, probably so, haven't explained that. Have so I? <laughs> we, we know. Okay, so this we have this lack of oxygen, yeah. which almost makes these tumors super tumors, right? Yeah. Radiotherapy, for those that don't know, use extremely high energy photons, right? And so if you're irradiating the patient so much and it's ineffective, then this is a big problem, right? Because it's almost like you've thrown the kitchen sink and it hasn't worked. Absolutely, and for yeah. neck cancer, because that is the most useful treatment. Yeah. But did you know? since you do radiotherapy stuff, <laughs> that radiotherapy actually requires oxygen to work. Yeah, no, so yeah, you taught me this. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's really important because patients whose tumours already have low oxygen yeah. and then they're exposed to radiotherapy, it's literally not going to work at all. Okay. Because the, the process that makes radiotherapy dangerous to the cells yeah, yeah. can't happen in low oxygen conditions. And then you combine that with the altered genetics that make the cells more dangerous anyway in yeah. oxygen conditions. So the chips are really stacked against yeah, these people. exactly. To answer your question about what I'm doing with the proteins. Yes, yeah, sorry. Yes. I still have yes, let's, sorry. Go, let's go back to that. Um, so I have cells which have reduced expression for this particular one protein that I'm looking at. Okay. Let's explain what does reduced expression mean. Because uh, yeah. Yeah, we all do very different things. Yes. I do physics, so I have no idea what that means. <laughs> okay, so if you kind of imagine a cell... Yeah. And all of the functions that happen normally in the cell are dependent on certain proteins existing at a certain level. Fine, okay, yeah. yeah. So 
in cases like cancer, yeah. a lot of these proteins might exist in different levels and that might affect how the cancer cell then responds to treatment, for example, and how aggressive the cancer is. So we often take these proteins that have re- altered levels mm-hmm. and try to find out how much of the effect that we're seeing in the dangerous cancer is due to the altered levels of that protein. So in my case, we've taken cells, head and neck cancer cells, from a patient's tumour some 40 years ago, and we've specifically... Oh, wow. yeah, yeah, that's a long time ago. Yeah, how, how, how is that, like, how do you preserve that? How is that? Is that so, some sort of biobank somewhere? No, no, we just keep them growing in culture. So this was... Oh, um, that's not weird at all. Yeah, I know When you normal, said growing, <laughs> keep them growing. It's not even... If you said we froze them, I would have been, okay, fair enough. Well, so <laughs> someone's, someone's cells were taken from their tumour. Right. And, like, grown in culture. So given, like, sugars and growth factors and stuff. So it's like... Yeah. I feel like it's like gardening. Every time I go into the lab and I... <laughs> gardening, but instead of, like, Brussels sprouts in somebody's <laughs> head, that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, but it's not like that at all. <laughs> okay, um, fine. Okay, so you've you've uh, you've yes, got these got old samples and you've uh, I've maintained watered them. them and whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then to these cells, we've yeah. given them uh, what's called an shRNA. Okay. So that's a really really small RNA molecule. Sh meaning short hairpin. Okay, of course. We don't need to go too much into that. <laughs> hairpin. <laughs> it's just the shape of it, basically. Okay, perfect. Got you. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we've designed that shRNA specifically to bind to the mRNA, which is the precursor to a full functional protein right. of my specific protein that I'm looking at. Okay. So I've given the cells loads of this shRNA that binds to my protein and stops it being turned into a functional protein. So then we've got a cell which has reduced functionality of this one protein. Okay, interesting. Yeah? Right. And then you're going to observe... Yes, so I've uh, been working for the past, well, during my PhD, looking at how reducing this expression in hypoxia affects things like migration. So we make a little scratch in a layer of cells and okay. see how quickly the cells rush to close that scratch. Um, why, why is that important? Because if you think about a tumour, yeah. one of the worst outcomes of a tumour is a secondary tumour forming. Of course, yeah, yeah. And that can come through... This migration process. Yeah, so cells that want to move and invade the other tissues. So so migration is other things that you observe? Yeah, so migration, invasion, as I just mentioned. Yeah, yeah. I do a particular assay, which I really hate. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, why do you hate it? Because it's... It's so fiddly. Oh, You have this, like, you have this gel that's kind of this... It's made of proteins which form the extracellular matrix that kind of contains tissues normally but weirdly it's frozen or it's solidified when it's frozen and then it liquefies at room temperature and then it solidifies at 37 degrees c oh funky so you have to do you have to move it about with like ice cold tips and pipettes in order to get it to work and i always get it wrong Uh, anyway (laughs) well that's a skill you've learned right i'm very translatable (laughs) yeah definitely i can for sure do that in the future so that's invasion, and mm. then we also look at the ability of these cells to form little colonies. So okay. if you start with a single cell, you're basically looking at how one cell can turn into a group of 50 cells. How realistic is that growth compared to what actually happens, say, in a human being? I, I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah. As, in, as in, could you use that model or the, that observation and maybe have something, some sort of predictor in the human 
Mm. Being like, okay, well, they have this many of them, and then in six months, that would mean it's grown by this much. Yeah, I don't know if we can do it exactly like that in yeah. terms of volume, but the way that I'm using it at the moment yeah. is I'm taking these cells and then I irradiate them. Mm-hmm. And then I look and see how many colonies have grown from single cells 12 days later. Yeah. So if I get, if I seed a thousand cells, so mm-hmm. there are a thousand cells when I irradiate them. Yeah. And then look 12 days later, they're usually like 240 colonies of 50 cells. So that's quite a big growth. And those are the ones that are resistant to the radiotherapy. Whereas when I look at cells that aren't resistant to the radiotherapy. So those are the ones that you've put in the yeah, that I've hairpin RNA. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the other ones, the control ones, which yeah. are kind of matched for the experimental ones, they, so I seed a thousand cells and there are probably like 30 colonies of 50. So uh, it's quite okay. a big difference. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, when we are doing uh, our PhDs, we always have this sort of the final application in mind. And there's always a gap between what we're doing in our lab or theoretically and sort of the real world. What are you and your lab doing to sort of bridge that gap? I guess the issue at the moment is The way that I'm doing this experiment, I'm completely getting rid of the levels of this protein, but that doesn't necessarily represent what a patient would experience and their levels of that protein. So the next step for this would be to move it into animal models using those cells that we've created, but kind of looking at how it works in like a systems scenario. Okay. So that tends to be what happens after people discover exciting things in cancer research. (laughs) And hopefully there'll be more exciting things to come from your lab. Yeah, so the really exciting experiments that I've been doing recently is using um, some drugs which are called hypoxia-activated prodrugs. So these are drugs that specifically work in low oxygen tumours. And the idea is um, that they can, uh, what we call, radiosensitise. So they can make the tumours more um, susceptible to radiotherapy. So I found that with my cells, when I give them these drugs, I can take down their radio resistance back to normal. Fantastic. So it's, it's as if they don't even have any reduction in that protein. So if we think about patients, there are loads of patients with low levels of this protein. protein yeah. They would be really good candidates for being given these drugs. So that's kind of the long-term plan. Where you're headed. Well, wow, that sounds really exciting. And in fact, that sounds like it has other applications, as in not just in your squamous yeah, cell yeah, carcinomas. Totally. Yeah. Um, awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your research. Next, we'll be talking about money and your PhD. But before we get to that, here's Julie to tell you some cool things that are happening at King's College. Thanks. So I just want to tell you guys about this cool event happening at the Science Gallery London, which is launching their 2019 program events with something called Spare Parts, where research from the School of Biomedical Engineering and Imaging Sciences is being showcased in this big hard data event. Basically, it's this cool collaboration between Dr. Pablo Lamada, who is in the Department of Biomedical Engineering, and an artist called Salome Bazin, Bazin, I'm not sure, I could be totally butchering people's names, my apologies, <laughs> who have collaborated on, on this event to sort of explore the complex variation of the human heart through this sort of visual curation of 3D hearts that are interactive and they have these digital displays and it's really awesome and I think you guys should check it out. Their goal is by presenting the minute details of each sort of individual heart that this exhibit can better provide the public with an understanding of how abnormalities like those associated with cardiovascular disease, lifestyle and genetics are sort of all present in every person and all interacting to sort of form the sort of interesting tapestry of the human experience. It's on now at the Science Gallery and runs through May 28th, so you guys should definitely check it out. 
Thanks, Julie. For those that don't know, the Science Gallery is just outside Guy's Hospital on the Guy's campus. And now we'll move on to the second topic of the day. And joining Katie and I are Julie, doing a PhD in Forensic Biochemistry. Hi, thanks for having me. And Olatz, who's doing her PhD in Nutrition and Genetics. Hello. So, as PhD students living in London, famously a very expensive city, it's not the easiest thing to do to balance full-time studying and paying the bills, your rent. Katie, how have you managed it? You're coming towards the end of your PhD. Yeah, so I'd say it's been a tough four years financially. But for me, I think my main consideration is that I need to be in the lab um, Mm. for quite long hours. So I haven't really felt comfortable taking time um, additional to this. I feel like I'd get way too stressed if I was in the lab nine till seven and then had to go work in a bar till midnight. Wait, so you did nine to seven as normal? Well, it's quite standard, I'd say. But not all the time, to be honest. I get quite late sometimes. <laughs> so uh, you're like a normal PhD student as in on a CDT? Yeah so I'm on a three plus one course funded by the Biomedical Research Centre. So my you know my stipend is actually quite decent like compared to other PhDs I get like a little bit more which has helped okay. a lot so it's eased that yeah. struggle but for me I think I have also wanted to work for a kind of academic practice so to get some teaching and uh, things like that so that's kind of been my main focus. But that's been more sort of for the experience? Yeah, for the experience and definitely also the money. (laughs) Definitely the money. Yeah, that's important. Yeah. So uh, what about the rest of you guys? Julie, you're an international student. Does that make things different? It would, hypothetically. The international student fees are sort of astronomical. I'm non-EU. I'm from the States. Wow. So I think they... Thank you for your donation. (laughs) Well, don't thank me too quickly because part of my grant includes a tuition waiver. So you don't get any of my money. (laughs) Um, Yeah, no, I would never be here if part of my grant did not yeah. include a tuition waiver. I'd never be able to afford it. But, but you come from San Francisco, another famously expensive city. That Maybe is true. Maybe even more expensive. Yeah, I think currently it has surpassed both New York and London wow. as an unbelievably expensive so place to live. So this is just like home. Yeah, par for the course, basically. Yeah. Oh, do you want to charge me 10 pounds for that cup of coffee? Sure, no problem. <laughs> Fork it over. So how is it being a foreign student? Have you had to, say, take up part-time work, do extra, say, um... Uh, seminar sessions or marking and things like that? Yeah, so I do some teaching on the course. I'm in the sort of analytical, environmental, and forensic science department, and so I'm a full-time PhD student, but the department also runs a master's program, and so I do a lot of demonstrating on the master's program for them, which is great because I do enjoy teaching and I like the experience, but it also pays, so that is very helpful because I'm on a very limited budget. And Olad, so you're uh, an international student, but you're within the EU, so you're our partner for now until March 29th. <laughs> I know, I know. Oh my God, I didn't say the B word though. <laughs> so h- how's the situation for you? How's it different to Julie's? Um, I don't really, I don't really know. The thing is that, uh, for instance, when I was a, a master's student, I think I struggled a lot with money because I was like self-funded, etc. Where did you do your master's? In Kings as well. Oh wow! Okay, and that so, was, yeah. so I think I learned how to live like very, very thrifty. <laughs> live like a student. And now I'm like, okay, I have my, you know, stipend or whatever, but I think I cannot get rid of being like super thrifty and everything. And it's a great skill. I know it's a very great skill. So for instance, I don't know. I try to, you know, like go like thrift shop, and um, there's an application called Olio where you get. Um, What's free that? Food. Sorry. Olio. Oh. How do you spell that? O L. I-O, okay. like um, is uh, oil in, in Italian. Okay. 
and for, is against uh, food waste. So for instance, um, uh. if you have some food that you want to get rid of, you just post it there and someone comes and pick, uh, pick it up. Uh. And then you can get f- from bread, from other places. It's, yeah. it's a good okay. idea. And about teaching and stuff, I would like to do more, but I think that happens the same with Katie. Like I don't really know how much uh, how much time I'm going to spend in the in the lab working. And sometimes you just uh, you just have this idea and you want to stay there until twelve. And it would add like so much pressure to have to leave the office yeah, and go yeah. somewhere else. Also, if I work on something, I would like you know something that brings some stuff to the PhD. Yes, uh, yeah, so you contribute to the same thing. Contribute to the same thing because I thought, yeah, I could do some like bartending stuff, but this is the, just going to make me more tired and I'm going to concentrate and I really want to do... Yeah, you don't want to do. just try Like the priority PhD. is the PhD, yeah. you know. I think that it takes a lot of time to, you know, get into the PhD, get the interview. Once you are here, you have to make the most of it. Yeah. So I prefer to maybe, you know, don't have like a lot of money, but still like do well. I'm the same, like for me the the benefit of having a job has to be more than financial, it has to also be Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. How about you Harris, what do you do? So my situation is a bit different to you guys, so I was working full time in the NHS as a medical physicist and then I organised my PhD and it was funded by the department, so I'm essentially being funded by the NHS and so that is... Um, great situation to be in in that I get to work 50% and do PhD 50% but I still get my normal salary so that means I'm a part-time PhD student so obviously that means that my studies are a bit longer so I probably won't be finishing in three four years but I also when I was deciding to do my PhD I did have an option I got accepted to God forbid UCL onto, <gasps> onto their uh, CDT program, but that would have meant going back down to a student stipend. Mm-hmm. And once you move away from student life, it's not easy going back. Yeah. And so then, yeah, my, my employer was really uh, good about arranging this, and so it's not been too difficult. I also don't live in London, I live just outside the M25. Oh, that helps. Which helps. So there is uh, commuting issues, and that brings its own load of problems. Even within London, that's an issue. But I think it's a fair trade off for now. Do you guys live in London? Oh, that's and Katie. Yes, I do. I, I live uh, very close to Stockwell. And I'm based at St. Thomas's, so it's 12 minutes on the bike. Yeah, I, I cycle as well. I live, I think, about 10 minutes away. This is so painful for me to oh, hear. Yeah. <laughs> so I had, so I had, about it. had an 8 a.m. meeting today at St. Thomas's. I, I had to leave my house at 6.30. 6, 6.30. Oh, no, that's horrible. Yeah, so I always have to... An hour and a half is how much I have to allot to getting in, to, especially St. Thomas's. Guys, is a bit easier. Mm. So what about the non-traditional ways of gathering together some cash? Yeah, what are people's side hustles? What are you guys doing to make ends meet in this town? <laughs> well, we, we, I remember we talked to Joe Barnby a couple of episodes ago about entrepreneurship, or entrepreneurship during your PhD, right? But like we said, it's really hard to do at the same time. I had a really weird story when I was an undergrad in first year. One of my housemates had a secret side hustle, which he was embarrassed to share at the beginning, which we all thought was really cool. It turned out that he was buying and selling Yu-Gi-Oh cards. 
So Yu-Gi-Oh! Yu-Gi-Oh! used to be a kid's cartoon anime, I guess you call it, right? And so he was buying these cards off unsuspecting mothers who didn't realise their value. So their kids have grown up and they've got these Yu-Gi-Oh! cards and they just put them on eBay and he buy them really cheaply and then sell them to collectors. And what, that first year that we, uh, the, in Freshers, he cleared 30 grand. 30 grand? 30 grand as Damn. an 18-year-old. Yeah. Have you heard about that thing with Beanie Babies? Do you guys no. know the Beanie Babies? No. Beanie that was one of those things that everybody invested in heavily because they <laughs> were like, these are going to be collectors. Wait, and wait. then the market like bottomed out. They are not collector items. Wait, They're what's worthless. A Beanie Baby? So what's these a Beanie are like Baby? these... Toys that were around, I guess. Is it the, not 90s, the alien thing? No, they're no, like no. tiny. They're stuffed animals. Yeah, like with they're little things. like ty tags on them. Yeah, and they all have different names and like different animals. <laughs> Thank and you. I appreciate that you know what these are. I'm feeling really old that nobody <laughs> else remembers Beanie <laughs> I think Babies. It's called tam- Tamagotchi. No, no, no. no. Okay, they were, okay. They were kind of pre, but almost the same time so period as Tamagotchis. Yeah, they yeah were like it was little, analog Tamagotchis. Little toys. Like a, I, like I actually had a collection of koalas that I was a massive fan of. Anyway, okay. I, <laughs> my brother, like, got really obsessed about this. He was like, guys, you need to sell all of your bean babies. You can make ten grand. And he was like sending us screenshots from eBay about like how you can sell them for loads of money. Yeah, there was a phase yeah. when they were worth a lot of money. Especially like there was a Princess Diana one that came out after Princess Diana died and apparently that was worth like five hundred grand or something. Wow. But it's not true. <laughs> it's not a thing. So they you know what I have price. a closet full of because I thought they might be worth money one day? Are those little Chevron Tecron cars? I don't know if you guys have the same oil companies over here because no. maybe not. Well, we do have Chevron. But like Chevron, it's like an oil company. Yeah, like a car, yeah, Like yeah. a petrol station. And so they made these little promotional plastic cars that were like all the rage for a hot second in the 90s. Are they like tiny ones, like Hot Wheels? <laughs> no, they're bigger than Hot Wheels. Okay. They're like Beanie Baby sized, oh, but okay. they're plastic. Oh. They're not squishy. And they were sort of this like novelty item, and I was sure that they were going to be worth big money one day. I was wrong. <laughs> they are not. Okay, guys, those are some fascinating stories. But aside from Beanie Babies and Yu-Gi-Oh cards, what sort of practical advice is there for uh, our listeners in terms of how they can earn a few quid in between their thesis writing? So as a real suggestion, if you're a student at King's, a PhD student at King's, you can... Um, I think if you're just a postgraduate student at King's you can do invigilating which was so helpful to me last summer I did like four full days and earned quite a bit of money Um, and King's will start circulating when they need invigilators I think it's at the beginning of the year but also because the exams are in August they might it might start around now so that'll be my advice so I would recommend to check uh, King's Talent Bank they have a lot of um, they have uh, all of other jobs and you can trust that because it's from gigs. That's that's a good point. That's where I got um, some of the teaching that I do as well. I am hooked up through King's Talent Bank, so you have a profile on there, and you can sort of in- enter information about your qualifications and what kind of positions you're looking for and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just sort of an internal professional database, so you don't have to have a direct contact potentially to get an idea. Although having a direct contact never hurts. I was going to say you could talk to your supervisors. Potentially, they have. They know people who are looking for demonstrators of some sort who need someone to fill in and help run undergraduate labs or master's labs or something like that. Or even within your department, if you know anyone who runs seminars or tutor yeah. tutorials, then they are always looking for teachers. So just drop them an email and let them know and they can give you some teaching. Those are all fantastic ideas, guys. And there's also the funding office and they offer confidential advice to current students as well, covering issues such as bursaries, grants, living expenses, loans and other financial help and it's always available at King's to help you 
and we'd encourage you to contact them if you have any queries during your studies. Thanks so much to the panel uh, and thanks so much, Katie, for being here and taking your time. One last message for our listeners. Don't invest in Beanie Babies. (laughs) (laughs) And I just want to quickly mention, I've also got another podcast out called Frankenwine. So that's like Frankenstein science that we talk about and we also drink wine. So you can find us at Frankenwinepod on Twitter or you can um, find us on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. Fantastic. Thanks for listening, guys. You can find us on Twitter at postocalypse18 or send us an email of your thoughts and ideas at postocalypsepod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you and any ideas you've got and any more suggestions. Thanks, everyone, for listening. See you next time. <laughs>